Hi, this is Jack O'Brien, digital editor at MM&M. I'm very excited to be a part of this episode of the A100 Storycast, Storycast, a new podcast series which gives members of the MM&M Agency 100 list an opportunity to expound on what sets them apart. In this episode, we are focusing on CN+. Today, we will be discussing multicultural marketing and resilient leadership with Lily Gill Valletta, CEO and co-founder of CN+. So Lily, I wanted to ask you as our first question, what inspired you to create CN+, and gave you the courage to leave your corporate job at J&J? Oh my gosh, Jack, that's such a great question because um, the short answer is I left to create the company I couldn't find to hire. In my former role in global marketing services at at J&J, at the time where I was, because I felt that there was an opportunity to bring together the power of the numbers in shifting demographics and how our country was set to be changing very fast, very quickly, and also have the creativity to be able to be culturally relevant in the world of healthcare and pharma marketing. And this was well over a decade ago, so I guess we were ahead of our time And I felt there was an opportunity and an open runway for impact. And that was the impetus, I guess, on the job, big aha, that inspired the creation of what today is known as CM+. It's an interesting background there. And I kind of want to pick up uh, what you were talking about with the country changing and the dynamics there. But first, I wanted to ask about cultural intelligence. And if you can just give our audience Mm -hmm. a sense of what that is, how that came to be. Yes. So, you know what? It's a term that... I actually feel quite um, flattered that many people are using it these days, but also well over a decade ago when I was still in my corporate job, I there was this one day when I was looking at sales forecasts for one particular product launch at the time, and I recognized, wait a second, we always look at sales numbers and script data and clinical data and business intelligence data. But in this case, which was for an uh, HIV-specific product, when you looked at the patient numbers, I noticed that, you know, depending on how you look at the information, 70 to 80% of those cases we wanted to serve were going to be Black or Hispanic patients. Um, And it just kind of hit me in my office. It's like, wait, cultural intelligence. We need to have the ability to be aware of, understand, and apply these shifting demographics in numbers and have the cultural competence to go to market differently. And that's really when it hit me. And fast forward now, Jack, I mean, it's been a term that we have now methodologies and trademarked and patented ways of working around it. Uh, But beyond empathy, which sometimes it gets misunderstood as this cultural thing you do, it has to do with the rigor and the discipline of knowing the numbers and having the competence to make inclusive commercial and business decisions that have impact and also business growth. And that in itself is our definition of cultural intelligence. Kind of picking up on that thread there, I wanted to discuss multicultural marketing with you and and kind of understand where your view or assessment is as it relates Mm -hmm. to right now. I know the country is obviously in a a changing and and, uh, kind of open dynamic, if you will. I'm, I'm just curious what multicultural marketing means to you and where you maybe see it going in the next few years. Gosh, that is the billion, if not trillion dollar question, because 
I do feel, and, and the listeners may find this shocking, but I feel that multicultural marketing, as we tend to define it, is a bit dated and maybe a thing of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, because multicultural marketing, if you just qualify it as such, sounds like a niche, small, specific effort that you do for a few people. However, again, if we follow the evidence and the numbers of our country, incidence rates when it comes to population growth, which 100% of population growth is coming from diverse consumer segments and patients, and the incidence rate of chronic disease, depending on which one you're looking at, is anywhere between two to up to seven times more uh, magnified with those same audiences driving all the growth, then that's far from being niche. All of a sudden, that is the new mainstream. And to me, back to your original question, is not so much about doing multicultural marketing, but it's about having the discipline and rigor of marketing to a multicultural nation. And that is fundamentally different. That takes it from being an afterthought and an add-on to being an embedded way of working, kind of like we all as marketers had to learn to be digital first. And I mean, you cannot be a marketer today if you don't embed digital into virtually everything and anything you do. And I do feel that today, especially after all we've learned during COVID and a heightened awareness of health inequity and value-based reimbursement models that are going to push us to really deliver on outcomes, there's just mathematically no way for us to deliver impact, period, on healthcare for all people unless there is the understanding that we serve a multicultural consumer or patient base. Um, so that is a bit overwhelming to some marketers and is a lot of the core of what we do day in and day out, kind of empowering and, and evangelizing in a way on how you uh, do with marketing as we've done with digital, but in this case with a cultural intelligent approach into how we develop things upstream with that inclusive lens. And that is an evolved version of what we've known as multicultural marketing. Can you kind of expand on on some of the challenges that come along with appealing to a multicultural mm-hmm. base? Because I can imagine that as yeah. we as we have more information, understand demographics better, that that is helpful to take action on. But you have to be able to understand, you know, what actions you're taking, what repercussions there could be down the line. Exactly. So there are different factors, right? And and again, one of those silver linings of COVID is that. You know, when we saw that, you know, let's say Black and Hispanic communities where, you know, four times more likely to be hospitalized or two times more likely to unfortunately die because of COVID, you know, a lot of people just kind of put that in the bucket of like, oh, yeah, it must be the comorbidities. Well, it's not just that, it's the good old social determinants of health. And I know a lot of uh, marketing plans these days, at least the ones that I'm seeing and we're working on are now embedding interventions that tackle those factors. And so when it comes to culture or uh, reaching diverse patient populations, we need to understand that the context of where they live, the type of job or the cities where we're more likely to reside or the multi-generational households that you're a part of, all of that plays into your health outcome. So we need to think about the cultural context and the social determinants that surround patients differently for us to be effective in our interventions and 
the results we want to deliver. And one thing that has been very humbling for me as a former, you know, pharma marketer, now as somebody helping others figure this out, is that if 80% of health outcomes are driven by other things that are not medical care treatment or that great therapy you want to promote, then we probably need to shift how we spend our budget and our focus so that we tackle those other things. And that is where culture plays in. And by the way, it's not like a black, brown, Hispanic thing. It's all of us. There's the culture of the Midwest. There is rural communities. There is, um, you know, indigenous, you know, populations. There is the New York versus Seattle. That in itself is a culture, right? Uh, so I think it's us reclaiming the discipline of being marketers or 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 educators in healthcare that put that person at the center and recognize that the context of where he or she lives um, is going to impact the way they relate to health and how they follow through or not with treatment or therapy, which ultimately delivers the outcome we want or not. Um, so I would say it's not about color, it's about culture. And a lot of that culture is driven by context. And context is social determinants of health. When you really peel the onion and look deeply, that's the stuff that unfortunately gets in the way of a good outcome. I'm really I'm really glad that you brought up the social determinants of health because I feel like that's been such a top of mind issue for so many leaders that I've spoken with in the past year or so. I'm really mm -hmm. curious if you're talking directly to that audience that might be listening to this podcast, those pharma CMOs, you know, what are some things that maybe you're paying attention to that might be flying under the radar or should be top of mind for them, especially as they start, you know, looking at their 2023 plans? Oh my gosh, I love it. Um, I have a laundry list. Let me just give you a few that maybe are actionable, right? So, um, at the end of the day, we need to have uh, an ecosystem that promotes not only healthy living, but keeps under control the rising cost of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And that's obvious. We all know that reimbursement models or the way payers are compensating or not certain things ultimately is what makes this wheel of health continue to turn and hopefully serve everybody. So pharma marketers, anyone that does this kind of work, should be absolutely obsessed in understanding what are the types of non-clinical services, products, or even new ICD codes that payers are now covering as part of their benefits, and even the government, right, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, that we ought to pay attention into the way we deliver our therapies. So if all of a sudden food delivery is included as part of my, I don't know, UHG plan or Optum, whatever. And all of a sudden, Walmart has Walmart Plus and even Instacart, it takes Snap as payment. Um, we need to understand that if I am tackling diabetes, let's say as a marketer or as a CMO, there's no way I will have a good outcome unless the people that I serve are having healthy foods delivered to their door or to their table. And if you take into consideration what is being reimbursed that is different, who are the gateways for that, like the Walmart pluses of the world, and how can I then team up with them in my marketing or go-to-market strategy so that I put all these factors to play proactively into how I will serve that diabetes patient? 
And that is very different. Like I said, a bit overwhelming because it goes beyond just winning with claims and safety, you know, numbers, um, because we may need to co-create and develop campaigns and programs in communities with unlike partners that we never talked about before. Like maybe that new diabetes drug should launch in partnership with Instacart or Lyft, which is having also reimbursed rides. If you need to go either to a checkup or to a supermarket because you live in a food desert. And that takes mapping an ecosystem more so than mapping a perfect marketing message. Um, so I will give you that one. That was a lot, but definitely that and community partnerships. So organizations like, let's say the American Heart Association, let me just pick on one or the YMCA for that matter. Those are organizations that have embedded leaders in community. And it's for us to look at these non-for-profits, not so much as our CSR effort or somebody I write a check to for the gala they do at the end of the year or for medical education or scientific stuff, but recognize that they may be probably the best messengers I can activate in culture and in context and in market because they already have the earned credibility in communities that may be harder for a pharma company, let's say, to show up and say, we're here to help. So it's like having the humility to team up with the AHAs of the world, let's say, um, and let them be your messenger and you empower with a good message, but others may be your better messenger. So I'll leave those two. Different partners for reimbursement and services that maybe are non-traditional and community partnerships that go beyond a CSR or a philanthropic play. Important points, both that you brought up there. And I, it kind of leads into my next question, which is when you look at sustainability efforts, which I think has taken off uh, with mm -hmm. ESG and, and other things we've seen like that on the corporate level across America, what does sustainability look like for you as it relates to healthcare? And are there growth opportunities there in the years to come? Oh my gosh, you're asking the question that is probably keeping up at night many boardrooms. Um, I have the the privilege of being on, on actually two public boards. And in our, one of our last meetings, we spent almost two hours talking about this question because it's not there's not an easy answer. So here's the thing, sustainability, right? And the ESG part of that formula. At the end of the day is about promoting a sustainable society. So it kind of sounds repetitive. Most people think it only has to do with climate and maybe good manufacturing practices. And maybe we should think differently about the paper we're using, the inserts of stuff. But sure, that's good. But sustainability comes into promoting healthy communities. And those of us that are in the world of pharma or healthcare marketing have the um, responsibility to direct our dollars and our spend to make sure that what we're putting in market delivers a sustainable impact that promotes wellness. So for example, a sustainable move may be a company that is advocating for green area zoning to be improved in the policies of a certain city or certain urban epicenters because you know that without that, it's very hard for people to be able to have a safe place, place to play or walk and have a healthy living. So it may be things like that, that when it comes to board reporting, it doesn't sound as a traditional like 
carbon emissions numbers and things like that. But when you can quantify, here's the efforts we did that impacted policy or things that we are doing that put investment in the hands of communities so that they can have more green spaces or better food or access to care in non-traditional ways and places that because there's not a hospital nearby, that can be measures of promoting sustainable, healthy communities. So just putting it through that lens besides the obvious, right, of other things. One other thing that is very important too is for big, big companies to know who they're doing business with. Um, I may get into touchy territory and maybe this is a topic for another podcast, but even how or where we source, right, whether it is active ingredients, compounds, we all know we lived it painfully through COVID on the big stats that shocked the world that 80% of a lot of our basic antibiotics and everyday things that are in your medicine cabinet come from places like India and China. Well, okay, what is that plan for maybe diversifying the supply chain? So that's another angle of sustainability that is a big, complicated thing to unravel that I know it's keeping up many CEOs and wondering how to tackle that one. So yeah, there you go. The obvious supply chain, carbon emissions, but policies and investments that are promoting healthy communities, to me, that delivers sustainability. Because without health, you cannot work. Without work, there's no GDP, there's no productivity. And that's what delivers a sustainable society at the end. As you said, we've we've all grown too accustomed to seeing how interlocked the world is as it relates mm-hmm. to all these different things. So Definitely an important point made there. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Lily, and and certainly brought up a lot of points I think we'll have our listeners uh, thinking and having a conversation afterwards. I just wanted to ask you a final question just as it relates to yourself and your own leadership, just in terms of where you find inspiration and and motivation, especially in an era Mm -hmm. where there's so much conversation about mental health, stress, burnout, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am a strong believer that every single day I need to feed my mind and feed my soul. And it doesn't have to be like I'm reading a book a week, like I think Bill Gates does that. It's something I don't do that, but I make sure that I'm intentional about reading something that is teaching me something new every day. There's enough between MMM and journals, or maybe set up Google alerts for the topics that are important to you. And I do take the time for that. And then feeding the soul, depending on everybody's, you know, beliefs system, before I put my two feet on the ground every morning, while I'm still laying down, I'm just grateful. You know, in my case, I do thank God and the world and the universe that I'm alive, that I'm breathing, and there's another day for impact ahead. And I think that mindset of gratefulness and recognizing that we're playing for something bigger than ourselves feeds the soul. Um, Obviously, your family, your loved ones, and everything else around should stay healthy and balanced. But I would say that's my checkbox every day. Feed the mind, feed the soul, everything else will follow. Certainly a welcome approach to the world. I can say that. And mm-hmm. Lily, like I said, I've appreciated our conversation so much. You've shared so much with our audience. And I know they're all grateful for it. So we appreciate you coming on the show. And hopefully if there's an opportunity down the line to be able to re-engage on some of these points, we'd welcome you back. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack.